Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. A great 18th century astronomer peers through his huge telescope and sees trees on the blurry disk of the moon. A century later, a psychic returns from her trance and starts writing in Martian. Fifty more years and a New Age philosopher listens to beings from Venus preaching unity in the desert. And thirty-odd years ago, in a New York City awash with crime and violence, an author and his illustrator are huddled together over what would become the front cover of a book. That's it! Yes, says the author. That, that is what they look like. The picture is of a being with a large head and a pointy chin, grey skin and vast almond-shaped wraparound black eyes. The alien abductor. The Zeta reticulum. Or more simply, the grey. It would become the defining image of how we imagine the alien. Hello and welcome to another episode of Patented, my podcast about the history of inventions. Brought to you from History Hit, I'm Dallas Campbell. Today we're talking about, I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens. I have always been fascinated by aliens for all kinds of reasons. And I think whether you're a scientist, you're going to be fascinated by aliens. It's one of those great subjects, I think is, well, one of the most important subjects in science of the 21st century. Can we find evidence of life beyond the Earth? We've had a few close calls, well, not close calls, but a few times where scientists have got excited about the prospect. I remember in the 1990s, Bill Clinton in the Rose Garden of the White House making this announcement that they had found what looked like to be a fossilized bacteria, kind of worm-like structure in a Martian meteorite that had landed on the Earth. Everyone got very excited. Of course, it it wasn't. It's never aliens. And again, a few years ago, in a a lake in America, Mono Lake, a very, very high arsenic content lake, they'd found an organism that seemed to thrive in the arsenic and no one had ever seen anything like it. They thought maybe it was alien in origin or from some separate tree of life, a separate biogenesis here on Earth. Turns out it was just a very extreme, extremophile. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And so far, we don't have any evidence of life beyond the Earth. We may find it, hopefully soon. I think if you ask most scientists, they would agree that there is life beyond Earth somewhere out there. One thing we probably disagree on is the idea of aliens visiting Earth. The idea of aliens, the idea of aliens visiting us is fascinating. And of course, it is provides for great fodder for our popular culture, for our movies, for our books, for our legends, for our mythologies. The interesting thing is that aliens, or the image of aliens, how we imagine aliens to be, is constantly being evolved and reinvented. Each age, each civilization invents its own. Are we creating aliens in our own image? Well, perhaps that's according to today's guest, 
Greg Egigian, who is a professor of history at Penn State University in the States. Greg has a book coming out next year on the phenomenon of UFOs and alien contact. So I chatted to Greg about the history of aliens, who invented aliens. And then we examined three close encounters, three stories of people who, depending on your perspective on these types of things, either met aliens or invented their own. Greg, lovely to have you on the show. Thanks for stopping by. I love talking about aliens. Me too. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I like talking about aliens more than UFOs. Uh, UFOs are okay, but UFOs are kind of boring. Can we just establish something? Yeah. I don't believe in UFOs. I'm fascinated by UFOs and aliens. Not that I don't believe in them. I know there's no UFOs. Yeah. And in my case, I kind of disappoint people by saying I don't really care if they're real or not. (laughs) Well, the thing is, what I don't understand is why UFO believers still haven't grasped the obvious fact that these are created within our minds rather than them being actual extraterrestrials. You know, because every kind of UFO photo since the dawn of time has just been a fuzzy blob to be interpreted as you will. And even the kind of new UFOs that have suddenly popped up, the Nimitz UFO, you know, the Tic Tac, and they've all got names. And yet again, the government are hiding the truth. It's just a fuzzy blob. You know, and part of the reason is, if you look at sort of the history of people who've seen UFOs or claim to have seen UFOs or met aliens, is what it gets down to is this idea that they have that to question their perceptions and their beliefs is to basically question them as people. And it's a blight on their reputation and their trustworthiness. And so it turns really around really moral questions for them. And I think that's a large part of it. Yeah, you're right. I I suppose what we believe anyway, whatever it is, is is generally a reflection of our values Hmm. as much as it is anything else. And if you are predisposed to I don't know, distrust governments and scientists and everything else, then, you know, you can... Un- I, I was quite taken... I mean, I, I suppose sometime in the 90s, there was a bit of a, a UFO renaissance in maybe sort of early X-Files times. And, yeah. and the Roswell incident sort of became fashionable again. And nuclear physicist Stanton Friedman, you know, argument from authority, all that kind of stuff. I was sort of not convinced, but I was interested. I was like, wow, yeah, maybe there are. We have been... And then quite... Soon after that, I was like, oh, no, it's just it's just my, I, I want to believe, as the famous poster says. Okay, so that's good. So I think we're kind of in agreement there. But yet we're both fascinated by this idea. I'm fascinated by supernaturalism and why people believe in such things. Why we, is there evolutionary reasons why we're sort of predisposed to believe in supernaturalism and gods and UFOs and aliens and angels and monsters and that kind of thing? I wonder where it comes from originally. Yeah, and it's so universal. Right. It is one of those things that is pretty universal and crosses all cultural boundaries, all historical periods. So there's something in it, at least in terms of hardwiring of human consciousness, that takes us there. So that seems to be unarguable. And even in societies that supposedly are highly secularized, you still see lots of evidence. Sociologists have shown this to be true, even in, with people who claim to, well, no, I don't believe in God. You push them further, they usually start to tell you, well, you know, I do believe in destiny or fate, or I believe in... So it's always a little more complicated. Yeah. I, li- I mean, I like to think of myself as a hardcore skeptic, but I still do dumb stuff like touch wood if I say something, or I don't walk under ladders, and if I see a magpie, I salute it, and do all the kind of superstitious stuff, even though I know it's ridiculous, but somewhere deep in my mind, 
there is that sense of kind of agency beyond. Yeah. <laughs> you see what I mean? <laughs> and I don't know where it comes. And I know it's ridiculous. <laughs> I don't actually believe it, but yet somehow it's deep in my dormant organ. <laughs> oh, all you got to do is be a sports fan. Yeah. You watch your favorite football team, and I'm sitting in the wrong chair. It's clearly it's two nil because I'm sitting in the wrong chair. So if I move, I know they're going to start to turn it around. There you yeah. go. That's the thing. I mentioned all this because I think I suspect it all stems from the same well. Perhaps, but we are fascinated by aliens. We're fascinated by extraterrestrials. They populate our science fiction, but also we love the idea that aliens have somehow been visiting us or care about us or nefarious governments have been hiding their presence. Who invented aliens? As a scientist, or not, I'm not a scientist, but as a science commentator, I'm well versed in and I believe quite happily that there is life beyond the earth somewhere. I just don't believe it's visited us in a clandestine way. But where did the idea of the alien come from? Did someone invent it? Did a particular civilization come up with it first? I don't think you can say any one person invented it now. I mean, this is definitely through crowdsourcing. <laughs> and it what about goes that back... Greek guy who does the alien, what's that program? Oh, on? yeah, Ancient Aliens. Ancient, Ancient Aliens. aliens. Yes, yes, there's a Greek that guy. guy him. Yeah, <laughs> yes, he used to be an owner, I think, of gymnasiums. That was how he made his money. <laughs> Probably is the Greeks, the Ancient Greek. Anyway, well, no, no, it's no. there in Ancient Greece. They're already talking about it. So there's this long history at least in the Western world, going back to the ancient times, of speculating on the idea that there are other beings inhabiting other worlds, particularly what we would call our solar system today, right? And it's a matter of debate. I mean, it's not that there was some consensus on the issue, but it's very clear that already by the 17th century, people who would be considered learned would have considered it an absolutely plausible, legitimate view to hold that there are inhabitants on other worlds like us. In other words, civilized. Obviously, we had no direct evidence of extrasolar planets in the 17th century. But was it assumed there was the real estate out there? You know, we'd look up in the sky and see stars with that knowledge that there must be planets orbiting around those stars, therefore. Yeah, and it just seemed completely legitimate. I mean, Immanuel Kant in the 18th century, the famous philosopher, German philosopher, said it's just unimaginable that these planets and these worlds that we see, in, and this extended to for many people to the moon, that these worlds that we see out there that are visible to the naked eye and then also visible with the telescope, that these wouldn't be inhabited. It's around the 18th and 19th century where the game changes. That's when you get really two threads that are going to intersect over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries where you get this idea that, first of all, we've got telescopes that are giving us now evidence of these worlds being inhabited, combined then with another side of things coming out of the really religious world of new spiritual movements. Yes, that's really interesting. I think back to... I think it was 16, 1640s, I think, Bishop Francis Godwin, the, the Man in the Moon, very famous, sort of very, very early science fiction story about being traveling to the moon by means of being pulled by geese and landing on the moon. And, and there are the Lunarians or the Selenites, I think they were called, the, these sort of beings that lived on the moon. The story is interesting because it was a kind of mashup of proto-Galilean science that was evolving at the time, plus religion, plus close encounters of the third kind. It's like my favorite thing ever. It's one of my favorite. It's like really dark as well. It's like really weird as well. But all those things that you mentioned kind of 
So we've got, we, yeah, we've got all those early ideas of uh, extraterrestrials in the universe. But yes, I, I suppose, where do we go from there? We go from uh, canals on Mars. Was that the first time we got excited by, actually, now we can actually see evidence of yeah, aliens? Yeah, and you know, even before that, you know, William Herschel was already saying that he saw evidence through his telescope. He was seeing evidence of there being, what, forests and pyramids on the moon before Schiaparelli does that. So it's Schiaparelli in, in the 1870s who says, we see evidence of these canali, right? This term that's a little more pregnant with meaning than it should have been, right? But that he sees these lines that see, and when you, you know, you use the term canali, canals or channels or pipes, it's, you're talking about something engineered, right? So Yes. Well, that's just established this canals on Mars, because canals on Mars is a very famous incident of thinking that we saw engineered systems on, on another planet. So we've got Schiaparelli, who was a, an Italian astronomer. So what year was Schiaparelli, Greg? I can't remember. 1877. So 1870s. And then that was confirmed by Percival Lowell, Arizona. Percival Lowell. He's the one who sort of confirms this. Now, he's an amateur astronomer, though respected at the time. And what he does is he confirms this then he also starts to say, I'm seeing evidence that what we see are these canals move from the northern and southern tips of Mars, where you have snow caps, to other parts of Mars that seem to be deserts. And so what he concludes from that is what's happening is these are man-made or Martian-made canals that are delivering water to deserted or literally deserted areas on Mars. Yeah. So basically, he looked through his telescope. He saw the disk of Mars with these kind of blobs, lines on. And from that, he concluded a geoengineering project in order to tr move water around. That's a heck of a leap. Yeah. And I, of course, what we end up knowing is that in the end, the problem here is they were seeing something. The problem is it was the, the instruments they were using. Uh, the telescopes were not good enough and not refined enough to be able to notice that, in fact, these were just simply anomalies that were an artifact of the telescopes themselves. That's really interesting, which brings us back to our first point about why all UFOs are blurry or pictures. <laughs> There's no beautiful, sharp, crystal clear. There's always blurs, which leads to self-doubt. And of course, when you then interpret that through the human brain, which may, <laughs> which is really rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> Very clumsy instrument. Well, it is clumsy, which is why we invented science, because it, <laughs> it cuts through the nonsense. Well, tries not all the time, but some of the time it No, it can contribute to it as well. It can very yeah. much contribute yeah, to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, but that's middle of the 19th century. No, beginning of the 20th century, we've suddenly got this excitement. And I remember also, we, we mentioned the moon as well. There was a famous newspaper, I forget which one it was, the New York Post, perhaps, or one of the American newspapers, with a famous picture of the surface of the moon with all these winged aliens leaping about as well. This was, I can't remember what year, you'll know. And let's just talk, because I want to know with the question who invented aliens, what did aliens look like? They seem to have been changing throughout time in terms of what we were witnessing. The idea of winged beings on another planet, there was something kind of ethereal about those, almost borrowed from our religious beliefs of the past. They certainly look very different now. Now when we think aliens, we think of the famous grey, that right. with the almond-shaped eyes. And I'm wondering how you get from how basically how have aliens evolved over time? Yeah, I mean I would say the thing that to me is really interesting is that bracket the famous grey alien, push that off to the side because that's a really a late twentieth century invention, is that the aliens that are get imagined 
well before that are really diverse. I mean, it's a really, really a plethora of different versions that are made available or that are depicted. Give us some examples. Um, we've got examples of aliens that look like basically ostriches. You've got aliens with tentacles. You get hairy beasts that probably would be reminiscent of gorillas or Bigfoot now. In the early 20th century, once you invent the concept of robots, that's when, around the 20s and 30s, you start seeing metallic aliens or metallic aids to aliens. They come in so many shapes and sizes. Some are tiny little impish creatures that you know are probably reminiscent of fairies and, and imps and things like that. But some could be giant creatures as well. So the shapes and sizes are different. And then there's the aliens who are, in fact, look very much like us. They are like yes. any other like the Nordics. Being. Yeah, they come to be known in some circles as Nordics. That's going to be later on. But before that, they're talked about in ways that they are either just like us or they're like us, but they're really, really beautiful. <laughs> they're like fashion <laughs> better than us. Yeah, they're better than us. A hundred years ago, one of history's greatest discoveries ever was made in the Valley of the Kings. The tomb of Tutankhamun was found, intact with thousands of treasures. And this month on the Ancients from History Hit, we're exploring how a discovery transformed a boy king from minor Egyptian monarch. Tutankhamun really worked to restore Egypt, but he only had 10 years. If he'd had 30 years on the throne, 40 years on the throne, it would have been, I think, very, very different. And he might have become a great pharaoh into immortalized ancient ruler. It certainly created something with what I call Tutmania, all these things that are indications of the fascination with ancient Egypt. But I think it did indeed inspire people to become archaeologists. Join me, Tristan Hughes, every Thursday on The Ancients from History Hit as we delve into the life and legacy of Tutankhamun, wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Is it safe to say that the way that we portray aliens or we think about extraterrestrials or think we see them is just a reflection of our what we're thinking about at the time, depending on where we are in history and where we are in culture? I think it's fair to say that because what we're doing is constantly trying to make sense of these things, whether we're imagining them or somebody is offering up the idea that they've actually witnessed one. As I often like to say, it doesn't matter whether people had a perception of something or whether it was made up or whatever. It's that whatever we do to try to make sense of these things is we invariably have to do and turn to our historical reality. We are all caught up in the stream of history. And so <laughs> that is what you fall back on. And so it's not a surprise that when people... Of course, that's know, the interesting thing. It's, you know, the pictures that we draw, the things that we imagined are all very, very 
were very specific to where we are. They all look suspiciously familiar. And I suppose when we do find alien life, it'll be nothing like how we imagined. We've got a few examples, though. We've got three examples that I'd like to talk about, which I think illustrates this really well. We're going to be talking about the very famous Betty and Barney Hill abduction case. That, If you've ever heard the term alien abduction, that kind of originates from the Betty and Barney Hill case, which we'll talk about in a minute. We also, we're going to talk a little bit about the George Adamski, who was a famous contactee in the you know 1950s. But let's start with, this is someone I didn't know about. This is a woman called Helene Smith. Is that her? Have I pronounced her name? Helena right? Smith. Yeah. Helena Smith. Thank Helena you. Smith. Let's talk a little bit about Helena Smith, because she's someone I don't really know about, and I'm fascinated about her story. And I think it illustrates our point well. Yeah, so it's the 1890s, and she's uh, from Switzerland. She's born, her name is actually Elisa Katharina Müller, born in Switzerland, works in a silk shop there. She's not somebody seeking fame, but she is somebody who's part of a movement that's already by the 1890s fairly popular, namely spiritual mediumship. And she's able to channel supposedly, you know, the voices and the, the thoughts of people who have passed to the other side. But the interesting thing is in the 1890s, around, I think it's around 1894, she starts saying that actually one of the things she's able to channel are visions of Mars and the people on Mars. That's she really interesting. Mars. Yeah. That's really, and it was that the first time that sort of spiritualism had sort of crossed over rather than it being about dead people? No, you actually about have aliens. this, this idea is something that's already there in the 18th century mystic Emanuel Swedenborg had claimed to have had visions of visiting the inhabitants of Mercury, for instance. So you do have people like that and spiritual faith. Typically, again, these are coming from circles of people who have claimed to have mystical sort of experiences here. And oftentimes, more often than not, the idea is never that they physically transported there, but they were metaphysically transported there. And that's the case with Helena Smith. And what's fascinating about her is these visions, or whatever you'd want to call them, transportations, spiritual transportations to Mars, gives her opportunities not only to sort of look around and see what it looks like, but then she starts meeting Martians. And she has a guide who she calls Astane, who introduces her to the Martian way of life, which is, and this is a very common theme, described as a kind of a very advanced society with advanced technologies who are understanding and sympathetic. But the really fascinating, two fascinating things is, is that Helena is an artist, so she paints. So one of the things she does is she's able to paint the Martian landscape. And the other thing is she communicates with Astane and others through the Martian language. And so one of the things she does is she transcribes the Martian language for people. And so we have this really elaborate Martian language that she established. Yeah. Does the language have a logic? Does it make sense? Is it, in a way, is it translatable with grammar and the things that kind of, def- like, was she a linguist? <laughs> she was not a linguist. You know, the thing is, is we know so much about her because of a French psychologist by the name of Theodore Flanoy, fascinated with mediumship and wanted to study somebody. And so he studied her. So he keeps all of his notes about this and is there during seances that she's performing. And then he gets all this material. And one of the things he does 
does is when he gets all this material about the Martian languages, he sends it off to one of his friends and colleagues, a fellow by the name of Saussure, who if you're a linguist, you know the name of Saussure, who is an expert in it and gives it to other linguists. And some linguists say, okay, this does not necessarily look like a conventional language, but they thought that there was in this something really fascinating that could be gleaned about how languages emerge through her invented language. Yeah, it's fascinating. How interesting. Well, I, I wonder, you know, the film Arrival, which was all about aliens and language, you know, and the, the, the aliens are drawing circles and they bring in the linguist to try and, I guess, the sort of sir character they bring in. And I guess in, same in Close Encounters as well. Famously, there's the linguist and they try and work out this musical notation. To seems to be a recurring theme. Can I just ask, Helena, how did she, you know, you say she didn't physically go to Mars or she didn't tell people she physically... How did it happen? What was the sort of the method of travel? Yeah, it would have been a typical kind of medium trance-like state that she would enter into. And then that would afford her the opportunity. And so a lot of what she communicated was through automatic writing, as it was called, where one of the ways in which you can sort of channel these other, whether again, people who've passed to the other side, or in this case, Martians, is they, in a sense, take over your hand and you can write down what they are saying. So that was one form in which she communicated all of this. Do you think she believed it? Do you think within herself? I mean, at what point does the kind of self-delusion hit, I suppose? Yeah, so I mean, every individual is different. I mean, there's no question that when it comes to this kind of stuff, there have been historically, I think, figures who use this as an opportunity to become famous or to make some money. There's no evidence that Helena Smith made much money. So she wasn't doing it as, to be fraudulent, you don't think? I think there's a sincerity there. Flournoy, the psychologist who studied her, ends up concluding that she basically was suffering from, I think you'd call dissociative states of consciousness and from what I think in more modern parlance would be a form of multiple personality, which, by the way, really angered her. Apparently, the two of them were close during this period of time. And then when the book came out, in which he basically pathologizes her. She's like, that's it. I want nothing to do with you. I think she sued him actually as well. And she later on, I think, moved to America. She found an American woman who wanted to be her benefactor, and she moved to the States and uh, devoted the rest of her time, apparently, to painting. When she painted the aliens, the Martians, what did they look like? Do we have images of them? Yeah, we do have images. They look pretty human-like. The thing she said was that they had two sexes, so male and female, but that both males and females all dressed alike and that they wore trousers and they had these kind of long robes and things, but that they dressed alike. And so there was a certain androgyny that she talks about. Yeah. You do seem to see that a lot in images of extraterrestrial. There's always seems to be an androgyny about it, which is interesting, but absolutely fascinating. Let's move on a little. Let's go a little bit later on time. I mentioned George Adamski, who's a very, very famous contactee. And I mentioned George King again, who's a very famous, well, I don't know if he was very famous, but the Ethereum Society, which seems to pick up directly from Helena Smith. Let's talk about George Adamski first, because when people think of a UFO, so I certainly do, I imagine the UFO that George Adamski drew, which is the kind yeah. of classic, classic flying sword. Photograph. photograph, sorry, I apologise. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly a, some kind of pan. <laughs> but it anyway, looks a lot it's a bit like... rubbish. Google it. You yeah. Google it, you'll see what I mean. But those three little bulges underneath yeah. for me, yeah, like, they, you know. It certainly looks like a lamp with some light bulbs yeah. in them. But yeah. 
Tell us who George Adamski was and what happened. So George Adamski was a Polish immigrant to the United States. He, uh, dating back to at least, I think, the 1930s, maybe even farther back than that, he was deeply interested in very similar things, occult philosophy, mysticism, actually was known in his circles of something of a guy who tried to teach people sort of Eastern philosophies. And I think today we would call a lot of his beliefs New Age beliefs. And after the first reports of flying saucers in 1947, he starts developing an interest in this stuff. And he had, uh, 1949, he actually pens a science fiction novel in which basically all of his philosophy New Age philosophy gets sort of boiled down into this science fiction novel of inhabitants and other planets who all believe in these values. But it's in the early 50s that he comes out and he announces that actually he's not only been spotting UFOs, he lives out in California, so a lot of open space, uh, but that he's actually met an alien, that one of these... Like uh, physically met. Physically met. This is not metaphysical... Yes. So this is a physical meeting as he's walking out there in the desert and this being approaches him and communicates with him basically telepathically. Announces himself to be Orthon, is his name, from Venus. And that Orthon in his fellow Venusians are basically here to offer us a message of warning, but a message of hope that they are basically our space brothers and space sisters who are here to save us from ourselves because of the dangers of basically atomic weapons and atomic and nuclear testing. It's funny how atomic, you know, the atomic testing and the first nuclear weapons really seem to spark off the motivation of aliens and UFOs visiting us, that existential threat, almost as a way of wanting kind of guardian angels to sort of come down and look after us, but in a modern technological guise, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And it's there right from the very start. And the other thing about it that to me is intriguing is the way in which this gets all couched in a way that, as you put it, it's got this sort of advanced technology element, but it's been connected to and linked to and bound up in this deep kind of profound mystical spiritualism as well. And the interesting thing, right, is that Adamski comes out of this experience with the idea that his job is to spread the word. So he is a self-fashioned prophet, right? He is not the one to save the world, but he's delivering the message. And so this becomes his goal and the goal of so many other contactees, as they're called, in the 1950s, who all share this similar kind of experience and similar kind of argument that they're making. Yeah. What's interesting is this kind of crossover between this sort of mysticism to the world of reality and the idea that George Adamski actually photographed a flying saucer as well. That kind of seemed to change things or drew a new line in the sand. It really did. I mean, this was big because this is 1953 when, you know, he ends up partnering with another sort of occult new age aficionado Desmond Leslie, right, co-publishing this book together. But the flying saucer phenomenon had been around for six years. And there had been, of course, all this speculation of what are they? Are they the American or Soviet technology? Is it hoaxing? Is it something else? If they're interplanetary, what do they want? All this questioning. Adamski then comes around and he basically gives us the answer, right? He says, I've talked with them. I've met them. They mean us no harm. They're here to help us. And so it is a game changer in many ways. And it sets, of course, the whole UFO world and community down one pathway. Now, 
he's going to be a deeply divisive figure historically within the community because there are going to be people who just call BS. This is absolute nonsense. And there are some hardcore uh, ufologists, as they're called, right? They like to science up their name. It's like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they're the people who are interested in the nuts and bolts. And this is too much for them. And then there are the people who really believe that Adamski offers the way. That to me is very fascinating how he enters the scene as being this figure who wants to sort of bring everybody together. But what he actually does is create, I think, in part a fissure Interesting, the UFO yeah. community. The kind of nuts and bolts UFOs and the sort of more spiritualist yeah. metaphysical UFOs. Great. Okay, so that's George Adamski, important person. Then it gets really interesting with, I mentioned Betty and Barney Hill, the first abductees. I don't think they were the first, but they're certainly... It's the story that we all jump to when we, when we think of the idea of alien abduction, of which things like Close Encounters comes from and the X-Files and all this kind of stuff. Tell us a little bit about Betty and Barney Hill. Yeah, so they're a very interesting couple, middle-aged couple. They're unusual on many, many counts. Probably the first thing that's striking, we're talking here now, 1961. They are a biracial couple. He's African-American. She's white. They're from the northeastern part of the United States, New Hampshire. And they're returning from a trip, a short vacation they took in Montreal. They're in their car late one night, and they claim they saw a UFO. They saw some sort of UFO. It kind of was frightening to them. They watched it for a while. But then the next thing they know, a couple of hours have gone by, and they're in their car driving, and they have no recollection of what happened in that period in between. It unsettles them. Betty has nightmares and all sorts of bizarre dreams. Uh, Barney has health problems. And so they seek out a UFO organization called NICAP to help them figure out what's going on. And that's when all sorts of information starts spilling out. This is the classic thing, isn't it? Missing time and strange marks on the body and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, it turns out they went to see a regression hypnotist. And it turns out that actually what they saw, they didn't just see a UFO, but they, they actually got abducted and had medical experiments performed on them. And I know Betty Hill also was a painter. She did all these drawings of what the aliens... And Could you tell us a little bit about what they saw and what the aliens looked like? Yeah, so what emerges as they go through hypnosis and other things is a vision of what happened as the car got stopped. These aliens, which are now have these kind of bulbous heads, these big eyes, don't communicate in any kind of significant way that's understandable, um, certainly aren't human-like any longer. Escort them onto the ship, they're disrobed, and then as you point out, they're examined medically, and then experiments seem to be conducted. A, a needle is shoved into Betty's navel, a semen sample is collected from Barney, it all is very disruptive, disconcerting, though. The interesting thing from my standpoint is how many times this story changed as it was told. For instance, just the description of these beings changed considerably over just a period of just a few years. Originally, Betty said that they had dark eyes and dark hair and that they had big noses like Jimmy Durante. And so if some people, view, <laughs> listeners might not know Jimmy Durante, Google Jimmy Durante, had a big all nose. All my listeners he had a big know nose. who Jimmy Durante yeah. is. They all know who he is. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so why has this suddenly become so much part of our popular culture? I mean, the Betty and Barney, that, the idea of alien abduction, it spawned the entire X-Files series, things like Close Encounters. I mean, not just fringe culture, but real sort of popular culture. Yeah. 
when I talk about the Betty and Barney Hill story, to me, one of the more interesting things historically is how it did not arrest our attention for very long, right? It becomes well known in 1966 when a journalist who was interested in writing about UFO issues wrote a book, The Interrupted Journey, that became a kind of a bestseller and brought it to people's attention. And then some years later, there was a TV movie made about it with James Earl Jones starring in it. But the interesting thing is that if you look at this, right, there was not a lot of examples of this making it to the public over the course of the rest of the 60s, the 70s, until the early 80s. There's a kind of a gap. And then you see it. So the question I think that needs to be asked is then why does it start to become part of the lore in the 80s? Now, I think there are some reasons. That's really interesting because it's the same with Roswell. Roswell was obviously in the 1940s, but it wasn't until the early 90s that people really heard about Roswell because there was a couple of books written about it. What's your take on it then? Why suddenly in the sort of 80s and the 90s did it suddenly become a... So I think one of the key reasons for this is that we have to go back to kind of the nature of these encounters that are being described and how disturbing they were. And that disturbing nature of things becomes the thing to which people grab, right? It is this idea of abduction, kidnapping, being taken against your will. It had been going on for some time, particularly in American popular culture over the course of the 70s and 80s, was a bunch of different things that resonated with that. You had, for instance, this is the golden age of hijacking. It's a period of time in which people have witnessed home invasions, probably the Manson family becoming the best example of that. It's a period of a lot of focus on, for instance, child abduction in the United States as a theme. And then all of this gets really crystallized when you have in 1980, the American Psychiatric Association comes to recognize the phenomenon of post-traumatic stress disorder, trauma, the idea of trauma. And so when you look at how this thing takes off in the 80s and 90s, the thing that gives it legitimacy is the people who recount the stories talk about their trauma. And the response, of course, of them and their advocates when people question them is, why would you question my trauma? <laughs> you don't do this with, you know, victims of the Holocaust. You don't do this with victims of violent crime. Why do you do this? Why do you feel like you have the right to question us about the veracity of what we're saying? So trauma to me is the key thing. And it seems at this time, this is where we see a shift in what the perpetrators look like, going from humanoids to this kind of dehuman you know, when we look at the emoji of an alien, that, you know, the grey, the big black almond-shaped eyes, the sort of grey skin, small chin, big bulbous head. Was that from Betty and Barney Hill? Was that, or where did the image of the grey come from? Because I'm assuming it's around about this time, what, the 80s, yeah. 90s? They certainly set it in motion. But again, if you look at, as I have at other alien encounter stories from the 60s and 70s, it is not the standard that's out there. There's lots and lots of different versions and variations on this theme. And that is not the standard kind of template for it. You really have to wait till you get into the 80s to really see that take shape. And I think the key moment for this is going to be Whitley Strieber's book, Communion, with that book cover, that dusk jacket. You, I don't know how many examples you hear about of people in the 80s who said, 
I didn't realize that I had been abducted until I saw that book cover and I said, yup, that is reminiscent of something I've experienced. That's it really had interesting. that impact, yeah. Just tell us very briefly, who was Whitley Strieber and what was Communion? Whitley Strieber was and is a horror writer um, known for a lot of fabulous horror books. Wolfen, for instance, among others. In the 80s, he tells the story of being in this cabin of his out in upstate New York when he has a series of really disturbing experiences in which he has these strange creatures, an assembly of various creatures, sort of take him away and make him subject to, again, all sorts of kinds of experiments. Now, to be fair to Strieber, Strieber has all, even in back then, Strieber has said, I'm not sure they're aliens. <laughs> I think they may <laughs> come from I'm not saying it's dimension. aliens, but it's aliens. <laughs> but it's <laughs> aliens. But he's always been very up in the air about where they're from and their intentions. But he ends up writing this book called Communion about his experience in dealing with this. And he ends up working with an artist who helps him create this now classic image of the alien that you described, Alice. Yeah. Ted Seth Jacobs is the name of the artist. Yep. In the book I'm working on, I've got a nice little quote from him about how he worked on it. Basically, he and Strieber sat down together over time in Strieber's New York apartment. And he basically worked like a forensic uh, artist does with a victim of a crime. Like, what did it look like? Does this look right to you? And so that's how they raised. So it was a cooperative venture between the two of them. There we go. See, as a product of the 80s and 90s UFO nonsense, or when I think alien, I think of that. And I think of, you know, go onto your emojis and find the alien face, the little grey alien face. Who invented that? Whitley Strieber and his artist friend in a New York apartment. I'm going to go with that, I think, for who... I mean, (laughs) there is backstory. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. But there you go. Greg, I could talk about this all day (laughs) because there's so much I want to talk about. I know, right? It's a subject I find it absolutely fascinating for all kinds of interesting reasons and bizarre reasons and strange reasons. But I love talking about all this kind of stuff. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, on our invention shows, Who Invented the Aliens? There we go. Tell us a little bit about the book you're writing or is it out? It is not out. It is done. It is now with my publisher, and we'll see when it comes out. I don't even know that we have a good working title yet, but it is a history of the UFO and alien contact phenomenon from the first flying saucers to last week. (laughs) Listen, Gray, I'll let you go, but thank you very much for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been really fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. So that's it. Thank you very much for listening. Keep your eyes on the skies. I want to believe all that kind of stuff. Don't forget to give us a rating. Don't forget to give us a review. It helps others discover the show. And don't forget also, we love hearing from you. Get in touch if you'd like us to cover a particular subject. You know, we're a broad church on Patented. Uh, You know, we do technology, obviously the inventions of technology, but we go broader than that. We do some cultural things like aliens and such. So if you've got uh, an idea that you think would work on the show, get in touch and we shall stick it on our list. I shall see you next time. Thank you very, very much for your company. Cheerio. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live 
and move to the UK. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.